All right, fellas, we're ready to go. Come with me this morning, please, in your Bible to Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. Uh, we'll begin reading a few verses in a moment. And Clifford will bring his glasses tonight. <laughs> Evelyn, you tie those glasses on to him. He desperately needs them. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. There you are, Clifford. Can't get out of it. Confirmation. So Luke chapter 2. Now, I do want to continue, at least just this morning, on the series, Notable Woman of the Bible. And it would just so happen... Uh, this being the Advent season and just the Sunday before Christmas, that it's worked out that the one I want to focus on this morning is Anna, Anna the prophetess, which is part of the Advent story in Luke chapter 2. But in order to do proper justice to it, uh, I need to back up a little in the story and share with you about Simeon. Now, Simeon and Anna were not in any way biologically related or they weren't married or anything. I've no doubt they knew each other. Both of them spent a lot of time in the temple precincts. Both of them were aged people, probably known each other for years. Uh, but yet their stories are interconnecting. Uh, just the way Mary and Joseph or just the way Zechariah and Elizabeth, their stories are connected. So Simeon and Anna, the stories dovetail together. And so we want to begin then by talking about Simeon and then we'll move on to Anna the prophetess. So Luke chapter 2 and baby Jesus has been born and now it's the eighth day and he goes to be circumcised. It tells us in verse 21 of Luke chapter 2, and when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, now that would take place no less than 40 days from the day Jesus was born. It could be later than that, but it would be no less than that. So Jesus, right now, whenever we come into verse 22, is about six weeks old, a little baby. Now when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And so Mary and Joseph were doing according to the law and according to the customs. They were bringing uh, the six little week old baby Jesus, this little infant, bringing him to the temple in order uh, to present him to the Lord. And there would be a presentation made, a prayer would be said, just like a dedication service that we have in here from time to time whenever your children are being dedicated unto the Lord. Now, we see here that they were to offer a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons because they were too poor to order a, a, sacrifice, a sacrifice of a lamb. And so down the list for those who were poor would be <coughs> excuse me, turtle doves or pigeons. So that lets you know the position they're in. <coughs> so, excuse me, verse 25. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation 
of Israel. Now there are those who, uh, quite a number of commentators would say that Simeon was a priest. But there's no hard evidence for that. Uh, there's those who even say that he was son of a famous rabbi. But again, there's no evidence to purport that either. However, what we do see here is that he was a just man and devout. He was a man of the greatest integrity and character. And he was devout. He was a pious man. He was a holy man. He was a man who sought the Lord. He's a man who followed God with all of his heart. He's a man who spent much time in prayer and reading of the Word. He was a man who spent much of his time in the temple area. And so he was a man who was just and devout. And he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. In other words, he was waiting for Messiah to come. That would be their consolation. And he wouldn't be the only one waiting for Messiah to come. In fact, uh, historians tell us around about this time, now remember God hasn't spoken to Israel for 400 years. When the angel came to Zacharias, the priest in the temple, who was the father of John the Baptist, this is the first time that God has spoken for 400 years. But there was an expectation at this time People were desperately wanting and hoping that Messiah would come and rid them of the yoke of this pagan empire, Rome. However, it's amazing that when Messiah did come, how few people actually recognized that he was the Messiah. And Simeon was one of those who was waiting on Messiah to come. No doubt Anna, the prophetess, was another one. And so... It tells us then in verse 26, and it had been revealed to him, sorry, it tells us in verse, sorry, the verse before that, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now, sometimes you just read over these things. Actually, that was a rare thing. Now, remember until the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came to reside within men, that we would become the temples of the Holy Spirit. From time to time in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come upon people. And it would be specific times for special occasions. But it would seem here to be that this man, Simeon, that the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it implies the wording of and the original implies was continuously upon him. So this would be rare indeed. So this man was different than those around him. That the Holy Spirit was pleased to continuously dwell upon this man, Simeon. And the result of that was, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit, that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So this again is an unusual thing. The Holy Spirit gives this man a wonderful promise. Aged as he was, but he would live at least until he had seen the Lord's Christ, the Messiah. Now what a wonderful promise that must have been to him. Uh, what assurance and confidence that must have given this man to know that he was going to live and that he personally would see the Lord's Christ. And so he would wait every single day from when he got that message from the Holy Spirit, he would wait every day to see the Lord's Christ. Then in verse 27 it says, And so he came by the Spirit into the temple. Now here's a man who would come every single day into the temple. This would be his daily routine. But this particular day, he was led directly and specifically by the Holy Spirit. He was, as we say, quickened. 
He was prompted by the Holy Spirit this particular day to go to the temple at this particular hour of the day. And so he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said... Now imagine this for a moment. Here he is coming into the temple as he had done every day probably for years, looking for Messiah and probably watching every couple that would come to the temple to dedicate their child to the Lord. Could that be the couple? Could this be the Messiah? And every day probably for years he was disappointed. He would go home, he would go to his bed and say, Lord, will it be tomorrow? But one day he woke up, and that tomorrow was today. And he was led by the Spirit, and he looked, and he saw this couple, and somehow or other, by the Holy Spirit, he just knew this is the couple, this is the child. And he went straight to them, and he took the child. No doubt he introduced himself and explained who he was and why he had come to them and why he wanted to bless the child. Obviously, he was a godly man and they felt comfortable with what he said and they handed the baby Jesus over to Simeon. And so, here's what he said. Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. Let me paraphrase that. Lord, now I can die a happy man. Lord, I'm fulfilled now. Lord, your word has come true. What you promised all that time ago has happened now. Lord, I can go home today and whenever you take me, I'll be happy. My job is done. Your promise has come true. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples. A light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Now let's just stop there for one second. What he's doing right now, this is more than him just saying nice things. He's speaking by the Holy Spirit. He's prophesying by the Holy Spirit. And one of the things he said, and for a devout Jew to say, you know it had to be the Holy Spirit, because he never would have said this just by himself. He said, this child, apart from being a consolation of Israel, bring glory to Israel, but this child will be a light to the Gentiles. This child will bring revelation to the Gentiles. So right away at the very beginning of the Advent story, even with the Magi coming to see the Christ, the infant Jesus, the Gentiles, God is letting us know that His gospel was going to be for the ends of the earth. By the way, it took the early church a long time before they realized that. It took the disciples a long time before they realized it. God had to give Peter a special revelation. You remember uh, of this great vision of this sheep coming down with all these creepy crawly things that was forbidden to eat. And says, arise, slay and eat. They had to go to the Gentiles, uh, to Cornelius. So this was a big, big thing he was saying here. And the Holy Spirit put it in his heart to say this. And so I like to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken by him. Now this is a lot for this young couple to take in. Now remember they're quite young, very young. Remember that the angels had came to both Mary and Joseph. 
They remember the shepherds had come to them as well and said what the angel said to them. They remember how that she, when she visited Elizabeth, her cousin, and how that her cousin, pregnant with little John the Baptist, how the babe leapt in her womb and she prophesied to Mary. I mean, this is a lot for this couple to take in. Here's another thing. Here's this total stranger, and he's prophesying about their son. It's a lot for them to try to grapple with and understand in their minds. No wonder it says they marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And boy, that was true, wasn't it? I mean, he just divided the people. The Bible says the common people heard him gladly. But the religious hierarchy, well, they put him on a cross, didn't they? And so, it would be for the falling and rising of men in Israel and for a sign which shall be spoken against that, that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Jesus is still spoken against 2,000 years later. I said at Christmas during the musical on the first night, it's amazing how many Christmas cards and the name Christ is just axed out, isn't it? And yet people who would ax out his name is no way frightened to blaspheme his name and just use that name as a swear word. They never use Allah or Muhammad as a swear word, do they? Or Buddha or Krishna. But Jesus Christ, they just use his name as a swear word, as a sign spoken against. There's no neutrality with Jesus. Or rather, former we're against him, aren't we? In fact, he says, if you're former, you're not against me. Those who are former, you're not against me. So there's no middle ground with Jesus. You say, well, I don't really think much about him. Well, he thinks a lot about you. And one day you will stand before him and give an account. There's no neutrality with Jesus. And then he said these words. He says, yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. And in the original meaning, it means a large sword, a big sword. Boy, there was a lot of piercing of her soul, wasn't there? You know, even in her day living, knowing this was the Son of God, knowing that her Son was Messiah, and seeing the againstness toward Him, seeing the religious establishment hating Him with a vengeance. And especially that day when the when she had to watch as they brutalized him and murdered him, hung him on a cross and mocked him to scorn. Could you imagine the pain and anguish in her heart when she stood at the foot of the cross and saw her own, that son of hers, the only begotten son of God, being murdered before her very eyes? It's no easy place to be, to be the mother of Jesus that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. What's the thoughts of your heart about him today? Do you love him? Are you for him? And then while this is happening, just at the very moment this is happening, well, let's read the next three verses. Now there was one Anna, a prophetess, 
the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age and lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. That's all that it says in the Bible about Anna the prophetess. But actually it says a lot. And it says enough for us to be able to justifiably put her in the gallery of notable women in the Bible because she was notable. So let me tell you a little bit about her from what we can glean from these three verses. First of all, her age. A little bit of a debate about her age. It says she was of great age. Some read that to mean that obviously she was married and obviously it tells us that her husband died seven years after they were married. And then it says she was a widow of 84 years old. So of 84 years. So some say it simply means that she got married, her husband died after seven years, and at this point she's now a widow of 84 years old. But it could mean more than that. It could mean she was a widow for 84 years after her husband died. So that would be 91 years. Plus the fact that when she got married, probably very young, probably no more than 15 or 16. Because they got married very young in those days. So she could literally have been about 105, 106, 107. She could easily be over 100. She was no less than 84, but easily maybe over 100 years old. It says she was of great age. So that would lead us to believe that she was very, very old indeed. It says she was a prophetess. And so here's a woman who was in touch with God. Here was a, another devout person. A person who spent lots of time seeking the Lord. And you can be sure that what she was praying for night and day with fastings was for Messiah to come. She could see the state of the nation. She'd lived long enough to see it. My mother, God bless her, is in the glory. She lived till she was 98 years old. She saw a lot in her lifetime. And this woman was probably much older than that. And she saw the state of the nation. God hadn't spoken for 400 years. And she saw the state of the priesthood, which was corrupt. The religious hierarchy was corrupt. Jesus reserved more of his condemnation for the religious hierarchy of his day than he did for anybody else. And here she is. She's a prophetess. God speaks to her. He reveals things. It says that she was of the tribe of Asher. Asher was a son of Jacob. You remember in our last study, I believe, one of our recent studies, we talked about Rebekah and how that her and Jacob, you remember they did that thing about getting the birthright from, from old Isaac and, uh, and how that when Esau, his twin brother, knew that he had lost the birthright, he was so mad at, at Jacob, he says, I'm going to kill him. And how Rebecca heard that, and she said to her son Jacob, let's go to my 
brother Laban in Mesopotamia and lived down there for a little while and when the heat's gone out of the situation at home, I'll send for you and you come back. 20 years passed and he never got back for 20 years and Rebecca died. We told you all that. But while he was in there down in Laban, her brother's home, he took a real shine to Rachel. I mean, Rachel was a beautiful young woman and he fell in love with Rachel and, and, and he went to Laban and says, you know, I want to marry your daughter Rachel. And he says, that's fine, that's okay. If you work for me seven years, you can have her. Can you imagine some of the fathers? Eh? That would be a good rule to make today, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be a good rule to make? What do you think, dads? Wouldn't that be a good rule? <laughs> All right, so... If you work seven years, you can have her. He says, okay, I'll work seven years. He worked seven years. Came the day of the wedding. Of course, in those days, it would be very heavily veiled. <laughs> Ceremony took place. Took her home. Honeymoon time. She lifts up the veil. And it isn't Rachel at all. It's her sister Leah. Laban had tricked him, the rascal. He went back to Laban. And Laban said, I'll tell you what, if you work another seven years, I'll give you Rachel. You can have both of them. You can have her now, but you've got to work another seven years. So now he's two wives. And he really, really, really loves Rachel, but he really doesn't like Leah at all. And then later on in that story, if you read that Leah had a maid, and Jacob had a son to Leah's maid. In fact, he had more than one, actually. And one of the sons was Asher. And from Asher came the tribe of Asher. And so her Anna's background is a bit iffy, we would say. You know, it's not something you want to look into. You wouldn't want to read the records of it. But nonetheless, even though she came from that background, she's still a devout, holy, godly woman. Her father was called Phanuel, means face of God. So it may imply that her father was a godly man. So at least maybe in her immediate family she had a good heritage. But whenever she was widowed, probably in her early 20s, she made a conscious decision that she would not marry again. That from that moment on, she would spend her days in the temple seeking the Lord her God and waiting for Messiah. No doubt, family members would say, I think you should get married. Do you realize how hard it was being a widow in those days? It was very, very difficult. Now the law, God in His law, provided for the widow and provided for the orphan and for the poor. But in practice, it didn't really work because the priests were in charge of all of that and guess what? They were corrupt. In fact, Jesus said about them in Mark chapter 12, he says, you devour widows' houses. Did you ever wonder what that meant? You see, if a widow had property, the only way she could dispense of the property would be through the priests. And guess what? They were robbing the widows blind. He says, you devour the widows' houses. So it was tough being a widow in those days. But no matter how tough it was for her, she decided, I'll stay a widow. I'm going to serve the Lord. I'm going to give the rest of my life to the temple and seeking the Lord. This is a notable woman, isn't it? And so here she is, who did not depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. 
Now some believe that she lived actually in the temple precincts. I don't think that she did. I think she lived quite close to the temple in Jerusalem. And I think she would come there every day. There was two main prayer times. The third hour and the ninth hour. The third hour was nine o'clock in the morning. The ninth hour was three in the afternoon. She'd come at least twice a day, every day, and stay for hours on end, even into the night she would stay. And she'd find a little corner somewhere, and she would seek the Lord. Uh, no doubt she knew Simeon, because he would be there every day too. And even though, as I said, they weren't related in any way, but devout people will find each other out, won't they? Both looking for the same thing. And it says, and coming in that instant. Now bear with me a little moment. Try to imagine. Here's a woman who would go every day for at least no less than six decades. Every day of her life, she'd go to this temple. Every day, she'd be looking for what Simon was looking for. Every day she'd spend in prayer, and I don't know how many days in a week she'd spend fasting, probably at least two days a week in fasting. But this day she got up, and she had no revelation of this like Simeon had, and she had no promise she'd ever see the Messiah. But this day she got up, and even if she didn't know she'd been led by the Spirit, she certainly was. And in the providence of God, she makes her way to the temple one more time. Now the temple was set up on a higher level. This was Herod's temple. It was a massive place. Josephus, the Jewish, Jewish historian, tells us that the acreage was probably twice that of the original Solomon's temple, which had been destroyed. So Rubble Reed built it that being destroyed, and now Herod is rebuilding this one. It's taken 16,000 men to build this. It's not quite complete yet in the story, but it's almost. It's a beautiful place. Huge historians, or Josephus historian tells us that the acreage was probably something like 24 acres. That's a big area, isn't it? Massive. It was built of marble. Much of it would be overlaid with gold and with silver. Very ornate. And so she would come up, and even though she was very old, and it must have been tough for her, but she'd come up that hill, and she would come through what was called, well, it was a portico, but it would be Solomon's porches. And she'd come in through Solomon's porch, and the first thing she'd enter into would be the court of the Gentiles. Again, this would be a big, big area. On any given day, there would be hundreds, if not thousands of people in the court of the Gentiles. On special holy days, there could be up to 200,000 people in the court of the Gentiles. And of course, people could come, and they could come simply out of curiosity, they could come because they wanted to see what this great edifice was. I mean, Jerusalem was the center of everything at that time. And of course, there would be proselytes, the people who had embraced Judaism from all over the Roman world. And they would come, particularly at special 
holy days and pilgrimages they would come. And so she makes her way through there. And then there would be a wall inside this outer wall. And there would be nine gates in this wall. And this wall, there would be posters on it, written on it, that the Gentiles could not go any further than that wall. There's other porches I'll tell you about in a moment, but they were not allowed to go any further. And if they did, it was on pain of death. So they were not allowed to go any further. And that wall was called the middle wall of partition. Now Paul writes about that middle wall of partition when he uses that as an illustration that there's no longer Jew or Gentile or male or female or slave or bond or anything. That's because the middle wall of partition is broken down. Now, she comes through Solomon's porch, through the court of the Gentiles, and she comes to the eastern wall, to the eastern gate, which was a massive gate. It was something like over 60 feet tall and over 30 feet wide. It was made of Corinthian bronze. And it was overlaid with gold and with silver. And there were steps up to it and then through it. And as she would go through that would be the court of woman. Now man was allowed into the court of woman as well as woman, but woman couldn't go any further than the court of woman. The next court beyond that was the court of the men of Israel. And woman couldn't go in there. And beyond that court of the men of Israel was the court of the priests. And not every man of Israel could go in there. And beyond that particular court of the priests was the temple proper where the holy place was and the most holy place. And in the most holy place, the inner, inner sanctuary, only the high priest could go in there once a year. Are you still with me? All right. So she comes through. And she comes to the beautiful gate. By the way, it was called the beautiful gate. And that's the one, do you remember Peter and John at the ninth hour of prayer when they up and they came to the gate beautiful and they found a beggar there, a lame man begging, asking for alms in Acts 3. And they looked at him and said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And he pulled him up and he jumped up leaping and walking and praising God. That happened at the beautiful gate. Why do you think he was at the beautiful gate? i tell you why. Because in the court of the woman was the treasury. There was 13 trumpet shaped, conical shaped, funnel shaped receptacles for the offerings. That's where Jesus, by the way, stood over against the treasury when the little widow gave her two mites. He was watching what people were giving and he says, there's those who have much and they've given much. But he says, this little woman has given more than them all because she gave out of her need and out of her want. So those two little mites, Jesus said to his disciples, boys, come over and see this. This little woman has given more than anybody because she gave everything. That's where he was standing. And so she would come into the court of the woman as she had done thousands of times. She had spent so much of her life in that court. This, this, this was a big place, by the way. This was probably easily 250, maybe 300 square feet. It's a big place. Lots of people would be there. But that day, she would end. And just at the very moment, in that instant, it said... And this is the timings of God. And this is why if we follow the Lord wholeheartedly, 
and devote our lives to him. The Bible says the steps of a good man or a good woman are ordered by the Lord. It wasn't a coincidence. This was the direction of the Holy Spirit. And in that moment, she saw Simeon praying with this little babe in his arms. And she knew this is the one. He's the one. And it says that she gave thanks. Now, that's kind of an understatement. I can imagine, I can imagine her standing, looking up into heaven, the big tears just run down her old cheeks. And she's giving thanks and she's shouting unto God, Lord, thank you, thank you, thank you. I've lived long enough to see your Christ. Thank you, Lord. And I'm sure everybody heard her. She was so excited. She would be thanking and praising God. What a moment in that woman's life. What a moment in the life of Mary and Joseph. Here are two total strangers confirming everything they've heard about their son Jesus. It must have been the most exciting moment in their life at that point. To know that everything they had gone through, all the gossip on the top behind their backs and maybe even to their face, seemingly illegitimacy of their baby coming, all of that stuff they had to put up with. And here, God is wonderfully confirming to them that their son truly is the Christ. He is the son of the living God. And she's excited. And she gave thanks to the Lord for what she had seen and for what she had heard. And then it says, And spoke of him to all those who look for redemption in Jerusalem. Do you realize do you realize what this means at this point? She went out of that temple and everybody she could think about that was waiting for the consolation of Israel, everybody she ever knew that had been praying for Messiah to come, she made it her business to go and tell them about Jesus. Do you realize that she is the first woman to publicly announce that Jesus had come. The shepherds had done it. They ran back into the village to tell everybody. But she's the first woman to do it. Mary and Joseph hadn't done it. But she's doing it. She's a notable woman, isn't she? And so she goes into the city and everybody she can find, she's telling them, Messiah has come. Jesus has come. I saw him. I saw him with my own eyes. I was right there when Simeon prayed. How exciting as that must have been for her to tell everybody. You know, the best soul winner is a new convert. Honestly. Honestly. They don't know all the theology. All they know is, I've experienced it. It's happened to me. I feel it. I know it. It's happened. And they go and talk about it. Well, that was Anna. She made it her business to talk about it. I don't know how long she lived after that. I don't know how many times she went to the temple after that, but I do know that everywhere in that city, she was, everybody heard about Jesus. <laughs> she just told everybody she met, Messiah has come. I've seen the Lord's Christ. And so what a remarkable, what a notable woman was Anna the prophetess. So fitting that her and Simeon would be in the Advent story. All of their 
fastings and prayers and dedication, all of the sacrifices they made, all of that, her laying aside her whole future, all of that was worth it in one instant. And all of your sacrifice for the kingdom of God, even though it may be inconvenient many times, believe me, one day, either here or there, in one instant, it'll all be worth it. Amen? It'll all be worth it when we see Jesus, when we take one look at His face, everything else, every sacrifice we ever made will mean nothing because we'll have seen the Lord's Christ too. Amen? Let's pray.